The Treasury of David by C.H. Spurgeon, Psalm 68 Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. His smoke is driven away, so drive them away. His wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Psalm 68 to the Chief Musician A Psalmer, Song of David We've already said enough upon this title when dealing with Psalm 65 and 66. The present is obviously a song to be sung at the removal of the ark, and in all probability was rehearsed when David conducted it with holy joy from the house of Obed-Edom to the prepared place on Mount Zion. It is a most soul-stirring hymn. The first verses were often a battle song of the Covenanters and Ironsides, and the whole psalm fitly pictures the way of the Lord Jesus among his saints and his ascent to glory. The psalm is at once surpassing excellent and difficult. Its darkness in some stanzas is utterly impenetrable. Well, does a German critic speak of it as a titan, very hard to master. Our slender scholarship has utterly failed us, and we have had to follow a sure guide. We trust our thoughts may not, however, prove unprofitable. The Division of the Psalm With the words of the first two verses, the ark is uplifted, and the procession begins to move. In Psalm 68, verses 3 to 6, the godly in the assembly are exhorted to commence their joyous songs and arguments are adduced to help their joy. Then the glorious march of Jehovah in the wilderness is sung, verses 7 to 10, and his victories and wars celebrated in verses 11 to 14. The joyous shouts are louder as Zion comes in sight, and the ark is borne up the hill. Verses 15 and 19. On the summit of the mount, the priests sing a hymn concerning the Lord's goodness and justice and safety of his friends and ruin of his foes. Verses 20 to 23. Meanwhile, the procession is described as it winds up the hill. Verses 24 to 27. The poet anticipates a time of wider conquest, 28 to 31, and concludes with a noble burst of song to Jehovah. Exposition, verse 1. Let God arise. In some such words, Moses spake when the clouds moved onward and the ark was carried forward. The ark would have been a poor leader if the Lord had not been present with the symbol. Before we move, we should always desire to see the Lord lead the way. The words suppose the Lord to have been passive for a while, suffering his enemies to rage, but restraining his power, Israel beseeches him to arise, as elsewhere to awake, gird on his sword, and other similar expressions. We also may thus importunately cry to the Lord that he would be pleased to make bare his arm and plead his own cause. Let his enemies be scattered. Our glorious captain of the vanguard clears away readily, however many may seek to obstruct it. He has but to arise and they flee. He has easily overthrown his foes in days of yore and will do so all through the gates to come. Sin, death, and hell know the terror of his arm. Their ranks are broken at his approach. Our enemies are his enemies, and in this is our confidence of victory. Let them also that hate him flee before him. To hate. The infinitely good God is infamous, and the worst punishment is not too severe. Hatred of God is impotent. 
His proudest foes can do him no injury. Alarm beyond measure, they shall flee before it comes to blows. Long before the army of Israel can come into the fray, the haters of God shall flee before him who is the champion of his chosen. He comes, he sees, he conquers. A fitting prayer is this for the commencement of a revival. How it suggests a true mode of conducting one. The Lord leads the way, his people follow. The enemies flee. Verse 2. A smoke is driven away. Easily the wind chases the smoke. Completely it removes it, no trace is left. So Lord, do thou to the foes of thy people. They fume in pride. They darken the sky with their malice. They mount higher and higher in arrogance. They defile wherever they prevail. Lord, let your breath, your spirit, your providence make them to vanish forever from the march of your people. Philosophic skepticism is as flimsy and as foul as smoke. May the Lord deliver his church from the reek of it. Its wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Wax is hard when by itself, but put to the fire how soft it is. Wicked men are haughty till they come into contact with the Lord, and then they faint for fear their hearts melt like wax when they feel the power of his anger. Wax also burns and passes away. The taper is utterly consumed by the flame. So shall all the boastful power of the opposers of the gospel be as a thing of naught. Rome, like the candles on her altar, shall dissolve, and with equal certainty shall infidelity disappear. Israel saw in the ark God on the mercy seat, power in connection with the propitiation, and they rejoice in the omnipotence of such a manifestation. This is even more clearly the confidence of the New Testament church, where we see Jesus, the appointed atonement, clothed with glory and majesty, and before his advance all opposition melts like snow in the sun. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. When he comes by his Holy Spirit, conquest is a result, but when he arises in person, his foe shall utterly perish. Verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. The presence of God on the throne of grace is an overflowing source of delight to the godly. And let them not fail to drink of the streams which are meant to make them glad. Let them rejoice before God. The courtiers of the happy God should wear the garments of gladness, for in his presence is fullness of joy. That presence, which is the dread and death of the wicked, is the desire and delight of the saints. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice, let them dance with all their might, as David did, for very joy. No bound should be set to join the Lord. Again I say rejoice, says the apostle, as if he would have us add joy to joy without measure or pause. When God is seen to shine propitious from above, the mercy seat and the person of our Emmanuel, our hearts must needs leap within us with exultation. If we are indeed among those made righteous in his righteousness and sanctified by his spirit, move on, O army of the living God, with shouts of abounding triumph, for Jesus leads a van. Verse 4. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, to time and tune with order and care, celebrate the character and deeds of God, God of his people. Do it again and again, and let the praise with resolution of heart be all directed to him. Do not sing for ostentation, but devotion, not to be heard of man, but of the Lord himself. Sing not to the congregation, but to God. 
Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Jah. Remember his most great, incomprehensible, and awful name. Reflect upon his self-existence and absolute dominion. Rise to the highest pitch of joyful reverence in adoring him. Heaven beholds him riding on the clouds and storm, and earth has seen him marching over its plains with majesty. The Hebrew seems to be cast up a highway for him who marches through the wilderness, in allusion to the wanderings of the tribes in the desert. The marches of God were in the waste-hauling wilderness. His eternal power and Godhead were displayed in his feeding, ruling, and protecting the vast hosts which he brought out of Egypt. The art brought all this to remembrance and suggested it as a theme for song. The name Jah is an abbreviation of the name Jehovah. It is not a diminution of that name, but an intensified word containing in it the essence of the longer August title. It only occurs here in our version of scripture except in connection with other words such as Alleluia. And rejoice before him, in the presence of him who marched so gloriously at the head of the elect nation, it is most fitting that all of his people should display a holy delight. We ought to avoid dullness in our worship. Our song should be weighty with solemnity, but not heavy with sadness. Angels are nearer the throne than we, but their deepest awe is consonant with the purest bliss. Our sense of divine greatness must not minister terror, but gladness to our souls. We should rejoice before him. It should be our wish and prayer that in this wilderness world a highway may be prepared for the God of grace. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God is a cry of gospel heralds, and we must all zealously aim at obedience thereto, for where the God of the mercy seat comes, blessings innumerable are given to the sons of men. Verse 5. A father of the fatherless, and a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. In the wilderness the people were like an orphan nation, but God was more than a father to them. As the generation which came out of Egypt gradually died away, there were many widows and fatherless ones in the camp. But they suffered no want or wrong, for the righteous laws and the just administrators whom God had appointed looked well to the interests of the needy. The tabernacle was the palace of justice, the ark was the seat of the great king. This was a great cause for joy to Israel that they were ruled by the one who would not allow the poor and needy to be oppressed. To this day and forever, God is and will be the peculiar garden of the defenseless. He is so glorious that he rides on the heavens, but so compassionate that he remembers the poor of the earth. How zealously ought his church to cherry those who are here marked out as Jehovah's special charge? Does he not hear in effect say, Feed my lambs? Blessed duty! It shall be our privilege to make this one of our life's dearest objects. The reader is warned against misquoting this verse. It is generally altered into the husband of the widow, but scripture had better be left as God gave it. Verse 6. God sets the solitary in families. The people had been sundered and scattered over Egypt. Family ties had been disregarded. The affections crushed. But when the people escaped from Pharaoh, they came together again and all the fond associations of household life were restored. This was a great joy. He brings out those which are bound with chains. The most oppressed in Egypt were chained and imprisoned, but the divine emancipator brought them all forth into perfect liberty. 
He who did this of old continues his gracious work. The solitary heart, convinced of sin and made to pine alone, is admitted into the family of the firstborn. The fettered spirit is set free and his prison broken down when sin is forgiven. And for all this, God is greatly extolled, for he has done it, and magnified the glory of his grace. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. If any find the role of Jehovah to be irksome, it is because their rebellious spirits kick against his power. Israel did not find the desert dry, for the smitten rock gave forth its streams. But even in Canaan itself, men were consumed and with famine because they cast off their allegiance to their covenant God, even where God is revealed on the mercy seat. Some men persist in rebellion, and such need not wonder if they find no peace, no comfort, no joy, even where all these abound. Justice is a rule of the Lord's kingdom, and hence there is no provision for the unjust to indulge their evil lustings. A perfect earth, and even heaven itself, would be a dry land to those who can only drink of the waters of sin. But of the most soul-satisfying of sacred ordinances, these witless rebels cry, What a weariness it is! And under the most soul-sustaining ministry, they complain of the foolishness of preaching. When a man has a rebellious heart, he must of necessity find all around him a dry land. Verse 7. O God, when you went forth before your people, what a sweetly suitable occasion, you and your people, you before and your people following. The Lord went before, and therefore, whether the Red Sea or burning sand lay in the way, didn't matter. The pillar of cloud and fire always led them by a right way when you marched through the wilderness. He was the commander-in-chief of Israel, from whom they received all orders, and the march was therefore his march. His stately step the region drear beheld. We may speak, if we will, of the wanderings of the children of Israel. But we must not think them purposeless strains. They were in reality a well-arranged and well-considered march. Say law. This seems an odd place for a musical pause or direction, but it is better to break the sentence and spoil the praise. The sense is about to be superlatively grand, and therefore thus say law intimates the fact to the players and singers that they may with suitable solemnity perform their parts it is never untimely to remind a congregation that the worship of god should be thoughtfully and heartily presented verse eight the earth shook beneath the sublime tread the solid ground trembled the heavens also dropped at the presence of god as if they bowed before their god the clouds descended, and a few dark showers drops stole abroad. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. Moses tells us in Exodus 19 that the whole mountain quaked greatly, that hills alone and high bowed before the manifested God, the God of Israel, the one only living and true God whom Israel worshipped, and the one had chosen that nation to be his own above all the nations of the earth. The passage is so sublime, it would be difficult to find its equal. May the reader's heart adore the God before whom the unconscious 
conscious earth and sky act as if they recognized their maker and were moved with a tremor of reverence. Verse 9. Thou God didst send a plentiful rain. The march of God was not signalized solely by displays of terror, for goodness and bounty were also made conspicuous. Such rain as never fell before dropped on the desert sand. Bread from heaven and winged fowl fell all around the host. Good gifts were poured upon them, rivers leaped forth from rocks. The earth shook with fire, and in reply the Lord as from a cornucopia shook out blessings upon it. So the original may be rendered. Whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance. When it was weary, as at the end of each stage, when they halted, weary with the marsh, they found such showers of good things awaiting them that they were speedily refreshed. Their foot did not swell all those forty years. When they were exhausted, God was not. When they were weary, he was not. They were his chosen heritage, and therefore, although for their good, he allowed them to be weary, yet he watchfully tended them and tenderly considered their distresses. In like manner to this day, the elect of God in this wilderness state are apt to become tired and faint. But their ever-loving Jehovah comes in with timely succors, cheers the faint, strengthens the weak and refreshes the hungry, so that once again, when the silver trumpet sound, the church militant advances with bold and firm step towards the rest which remains. By this faithfulness, the faith of God's people is confirmed and their hearts established. If fatigue and want made them waver, the timely supply of grace stays them again upon the eternal foundations. Verse 10. Your congregation has dwelt therein, and the wilderness itself encloses in a wall of fire. Your chosen church has found a home, or rather girdled, by the shower of free grace which fell all around the camp. Your flock has rested. The congregation of the faithful find the Lord to be their dwelling place in all generations. Where there were no dwellings of men, God was a dwelling of his people. You, O God, have prepared your goodness for the poor. Within the guarded circle there was plenty for all. All were poor in themselves, yet there were no beggars in all of the camp. For celestial fare was to be had for the gathering. We too still dwell within the circling protection of the Most High and find goodness made ready for use. Although poor and needy by nature, we are enriched by grace. Divine preparations in the decree, the covenant, the atonement, providence, and the Spirit's work have made ready for us a fullness of the blessing of the Lord. Happy people, though in the wilderness, for all things are ours in possessing the favor and presence of our God. Verse 11. In the next verse, we do not sing of marching, but of battle and victory. The Lord gave the word, the enemy was near, and the silver trumpet from the tabernacle door was God's mouth to warn the camp. Then was there hurrying to and fro, and a general telling of the news, great was the company of those that published it. The women ran from the tent to tent, and roused their lords to battle. Ready as they always were to chant the victory, they were equally swift to publish the fact that the battle note had been sounded. 
The ten thousand maids of Israel, like good handmaids of the Lord, aroused the sleepers, called in the wanderers, and bade the valiant men to hasten to the fray. Oh, for the like zeal in the church of today, that when the gospel is published, both men and women may eagerly spread the glad tidings of great joy. Verse 12. Kings of armies did flee apace. The lords of hosts fled before the lord of hosts. No sooner did the ark advance when the enemy turned his back, even the princely leaders did not stay, but took to flight. The rout was complete, the retreat hurried and disorderly, they did flee, did flee, helter-skelter, pell-mell, as we say. Where are the kings of mighty hosts? Fled far away, fled far and wide, their triumph and their trophied boasts. The damsels in their bowers divide, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. The women who had published a war cry shared the booty. The feeblest in Israel had a portion of the prey. Gallant warriors cast her spoils at the feet of the women and bade them array themselves in splendor, taking each one a prey of a number of colors, of a number of colors of needlework on both sides. When the Lord gives success to his gospel, the very best of his saints are made glad and fill themselves partakers in the blessing. Verse 13. Though you have lying among the pots. Does he mean that the women at home who had been meanly clad as they performed their household work would be so gorgeously arrayed in the spoil that they should be like doves of silver wing and golden plumage? Or would he say that Israel, which had been begrimed in the brick kilns of Egypt should come forth lustrous and happy in triumph and liberty? Or did the song signify that the ark should be brought from its poor abode with Obed-Edom into a fairer dwelling place? It is a hard passage, a nut for the learned to crack. If we knew all that was known when this ancient hymn was composed, the illusion would no doubt strike us as being beautifully appropriate. But as we do not, we will let it rest among the unriddled things. Joseph Alexander reads it, quote, When ye shall lie down between the borders, ye shall be like the wings, and so on, which he considers to mean, when settled in peace, the land shall enjoy prosperity. But this version does not seem to us any more clear than our authorized one. Of making many conjectures, there is no end, but the sense seems to be that from the lowest condition the Lord would lift up his people into joy, liberty, wealth, and beauty. Their enemies may have called them squatters among the pots. In allusion to their Egyptian slavery, they may have jested at them as scullions of Pharaoh's kitchen. But the Lord would avenge them and give them beauty for blackness, glory for grime. Yet shall you be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. The dove's wing flash light like silver, and anon gleams with the radiance of the pale, pure gold. The lovely changeable colors of the dove might well image the mild, lustrous beauty of the nation when arrayed in white holiday attire, bedecked with their gems, jewels, and ornaments of gold. God's saints have been in worse places than among the pots, but now they soar aloft into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was as white as snow in Solomon. The victory was due to the Almighty arm alone. He scattered the haughty ones who came against his people. 
and he did it as easily as snow is driven from the bleak sides of Solomon. The word white appears to be imported into the text, and by leaving it out, the sense is easily. A traveler informed the writer that on a raw and gusty day, he saw the sight of what he supposed to be Mount Solomon, suddenly swept bare by a gust of wind, so that the snow was driven here and there into the air like the down of thistles or the spray of the sea. Thus did the omnipotent one scatter all the potentates that defied Israel. If our authorized version must stand, the conjecture is that the bleached bones of the enemy are the royal mantles cast away in flight, white in the battlefield, appear to be rather too far-fetched for sacred poetry. Another opinion is that Solomon was covered with dark forests and appeared black, but presented quite another aspect when the snow covered it, and that by this noteworthy change from somber shade to gleaming whiteness, the poet sets forth the change from war to peace. Whatever may be the precise meaning, it was intended to portray the glory and completeness of the divine triumph over the greatest foes. In this, let all believers rejoice. Verse 15. Here the priests on the summit of the chosen hill begin to extol the Lord for his choice of Zion as his dwelling place. The hill of God is as a hill of Bashan, or more accurately, a hill of God is Bashan. That is to say, Bashan is an eminent mountain far exceeding Zion in height. According to the Hebrew custom, every great or remarkable thing is thus designated, where we talk of the devil's dike, the devil's ditch, the devil's punch bowl, and so on. The more commendable idiom of the Hebrew speaks of the hill of God, the trees of the Lord, the river of God, and so on. And high hill is the hills of Bashan, or rather a mount of peaks is Bashan. It does not appear that Zion is compared with Bashan, but contrasted with it. Zion certainly was not a high hill comparatively, and it is here conceded that Bashan is a greater mound, but not so glorious. For the Lord in choosing Zion had exalted it above the loftier hills. The loftiness of nature is made as nothing before the Lord. He chooses as he pleases him, and according to the counsel of his own will, he selects Zion and passes by the proud, uplifted peaks of Bashan. Thus doth he make to be things of this world and the things that are despised to become monuments of his grace and sovereignty. Verse 16. Why leap ye, ye high hills? Why are ye moved to envy? Envy is ye made, the Lord's choice is fixed. Lift up yourselves and even leap from your seats. You cannot reach the sublimity which Jehovah's presence has bestowed on a little hill of Moriah. This is a hill which God desires to dwell in. Elohim makes Zion his abode, yea, Jehovah resides there, yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Spiritually, the Lord abides eternally in Zion, his chosen church, and it was Zion's glory to be typical thereof. But were Carmel and Surion, with all their height, compared to Zion, the joy of the whole earth? God's election is a patent of nobility. They are choice men whom God has chosen, and that place is superlatively honored, which he honors with his presence. Verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000. Other countries, which in the former verse were symbolically referred to as high hills, gloried in their chariots of war. 
But Zion, though far more lowly, was stronger than they, for the omnipotence of God was to her as to myriads of chariots. The Lord of hosts could summon more forces into the field than all the petty lords who boasted in their armies. His horses of fire and chariots of fire would be more than a match for their fiery steeds and flashing cars. The original is grandly expressive. The war chariots of Elohim are myriads, a thousand thousands. The marginal reading of her Bibles, even many thousands, is far more correct than the rendering even thousands of angels. It is not easy to see where our venerable translators found these angels, for they are not in the text. However, as it is a blessing to entertain them unawares, we are glad to meet with them in English, even though the Hebrews know them not, and the more so because it cannot be doubted that they constitute a right noble squadron of the myriad of hosts of God. We read in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 of the Lord's coming with ten thousands of his saints, or holy ones, as in Hebrews 12, verse 22. We find upon Mount Zion an innumerable company of angels so that our worthy translators putting the text together inferred the angels and the clause is so truthfully explanatory that we have no fault to find with it. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place, or it is a Sinai in holiness. God is in Zion as the commander-in-chief of his countless hosts, and where he is, there is holiness. The throne of grace on Zion is as holy as the throne of justice on Sinai. The displays of his glory may not be so terrible under the new covenant as under the old, but they are even more marvelous if seen by the spiritual eye. Sinai has no excellency of glory beyond Zion, but the rather it pales its light of law before the nude-tide splendors of Zion's grace and truth. How joyful was it to be a pious Hebrew, to know that God was as truly with his people in the tabernacle and temple as amid the tares on the Mount of Horeb. But it is even more heart-cheering to us to be assured that the Lord abides in his church and has chosen it to be his rest forever. May we be zealous for the maintenance of holiness in the spiritual house which God condescends to occupy. Let a sense of its presence consume as with flames of fire every false way. The presence of God is the strength of the church. All power is ours when God is ours. Twenty thousand chariots shall bear the gospel to the ends of the earth, and myriads of agencies shall work for its success. Providence is on our side, and it has servants everywhere. There is no room for a shade of doubt or discouragement, but every reason for exultation and confidence. Well, that is to the end of verse 17, and before I close out this recording, I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter verses. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, a God of our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverance from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, a hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongue of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. 
Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. 